0: Matthew 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Father, I thank you for this beautiful day. I thank you for the gathering of the saint. I thank you that we can praise your name. We can pray and have access to the throne room of grace. I thank you that, Lord, you are enthroned upon the praises and the prayers of your people. So we want you here. I pray as we look at this very important text that, Lord, you would do the unseen work that only your spirit can do. Apply it and press press it into us that the word would become flesh and transform us. So may you have your way. May our hearts be ready. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. So I know it seems crazy, but we are in the month of July, right? It's crazy. So about half of the men in this bowl right now, they're getting excited about something that's coming up. Someone said it right here, football season, right? Yes, almost there. And the first game of college football is huge, isn't it? Because you're not quite sure how your team is going to be until that first game. You can read and you can think, but it's really that first game that tells you it. So let's say your team is the Oregon Ducks. Now, if they go in that first game and they lose, what happens to your season? It's ruined, right? What's that? You become a Beaver fan. Well, I'm not going to say the Beavers are going to win their first game either. You're not a fan of Oregon State for their winning record. You're a fan because you like orange and black. That's the only reason. So if they lose that first game, you know, oh, bummer. If they barely squeak out a win, then you're kind of, ah for the rest of the season, like, oh, are they that good? They're not that good. They lost their quarterback. I'm not sure if they're gonna be that good, right? But if they whip up on them and beat them by 50 points, guess what? You can skip the Prozac. Ah, no depression, no worry. It's gonna be another great season. It's that first initial game, that kickoff that matters. We have in Matthew 16, the kickoff of something much bigger than a football season. We have the very kickoff of the church of Jesus Christ. This is it. This is the launch. Jesus here for the first time mentions what he has come to establish this thing that we call today the church. And it is huge. We'll talk about this on Wednesday night down here, seven o'clock, you can join us, Radical Chapter. But we're gonna look at this launch and there's some real important things in it. The first is this, the location Jesus chooses to launch the church. So I read verse 13 and it says, Jesus makes his way to Caesarea Philippi. This place, it's the very northernmost part of Israel. One more step and you're out of Israel. So he's as north as it can be, way up there. It's past Dan, past all this stuff. And I was actually in Caesarea Philippi three weeks ago. And when you go there, there's some neat things about it. Number one, you don't wander into, you don't stumble into this place. You have to say, that's where I want to be, right? It's almost like my house, My house is down a country road, down a country road. You take a right on a gravel driveway, travel a while, while, turn another right on a gravel driveway, go for a while, turn a left, go up a while, then you're at my house and it's a dead end. So people that are at my house are either lost or they're looking for something. No, bro, I don't have any marijuana here. I'm sorry. I saw a Volkswagen bus. Doesn't matter. I don't have it here. You don't stumble to my house. You know this is where I'm headed. You don't stumble into Nome, Alaska. That has to be your destination. Jesus has selected this place. He's traveled up there. He just had a big discussion, we'll see on Wednesday, with the elite religious people of the land, and then he just moves up there. He wants to be in Caesarea Philippi. Now, why? I think here's why, because I was there. There is a massive rock right there in Caesarea Philippi. Jesus talks about a rock. There's also this cave. And in front of this cave, there is a crack that goes way into the ground. And 2,000 years ago, when Jesus was there, there was a temple in that cave over that crack. And it was a temple to the god Pan. Do you guys know who the god Pan is? He's the half goat, half man God. In fact, he is the number one way that we as Americans represent Satan, horns, you know, funny chin, goatee, tail, um, kind of funny hairy legs with goat feet. It's the number one way. If you look at an Ozzy Osbourne record, when it has Satan on there, it's the god Pan. So it's the way that we really think about Satan, Pan. And the reason why is because Pan was a really bad god. Like when you look at the worship of Pan, it was very, very sexual. And I got to keep this PG, but Pan worship was not. It was called panic sex, in fact. It was dirty. It was, pan means everything, and that's what it was. Men, women, beasts. It was really, really, really bad. The rabbis of this time told every good Jew, you're not allowed to go there. That place is off limits. It's the red light district of Amsterdam, right? Right? That's where Jesus is at. Now, some people say, well, Jesus wasn't actually at that spot. He was just in the town. Well, he mentions literally the gates of Hades. That crack that was underneath the temple of Pan was called, guess what? The gate of Hades. It's where they believe dead spirits went or dead spirits came out. So Jesus is most definitely standing in front of this temple, telling his disciples about this thing he's going to launch called the church. Now keep that spinning in your mind as we go forward. So that's first the location. Number two, he uses this title of himself. He looks at his disciples and he says, who do men say the son of man is? That title Jesus uses 80 times of himself. Pretty important title. Where did Jesus get that title? If you know your Bible... The reference is to the book of Daniel. It's Daniel chapter seven, and I was gonna read it, but I know it's gonna get hot. So I'm gonna give you the quick summary. In Daniel seven, Daniel has this vision of these beasts. And then the last beast, I just call it the mega beast. And this mega beast is crushing God's people, destroying them, hurtful, harmful. So Daniel is watching beast after beast after beast, and they represent kingdoms or governments. And he would realize, man, governments can crush people because that's what had happened to him. As a youth, he lived in Jerusalem and this empire called Babylon came, took him from his home, took him to Babylon, and then crushed the city of Jerusalem. You can read about its crushing in Lamentations. Hundreds of thousands of people were killed. He knows about governments. And then while he's in Babylon, the Babylonian government starts to hurt his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, put into a fiery furnace. He's thrown to the lions. The Persians come and they crush Babylon. He's watching this happen in his life. He knows about the abuse of power and how beastly governments can hurt people and there can be injustice and apartheid and slavery and all kinds of bad things. He's seen it. And so he's reading about these beasts and this one beast that's coming, this mega beast. And he's like, oh no, it's going to happen. And then the whole vision changes because it says the ancient of days, which is another term for God, the everlasting one, sits on his throne, opens the books and judgment begins. And this mega beast is killed and burned. It's God saying, I see and I will act and there will be justice. And then right after that, then there is, it says, one like the Son of Man. The phrase Jesus uses of himself. One like the Son of Man came, and unto him was given a kingdom and power and rule, and his rule would be everlasting. There'd be no end to it, and it's going to be a rule of righteousness and justice. Who does that sound like? Jesus. Jesus it's a prophecy of Jesus. Jesus grabs this name because this prophecy is all about him. There is a new kingdom coming with a new king, and no longer will it be beastly and destructive and abusing power. This new kingdom is going to be ruled by a king who rules very differently, who says the first shall be last. Who says, if you want to be great in this kingdom, then you become the least. Who says, in this kingdom, you serve one another. It's an upside down righteous kingdom. This kingdom is coming. So he uses that analogy. Who do people say that I am? And they would know, oh, Daniel chapter seven. All right. Number three, notice their answer. They answer and it's an analogy, right? Who do people say that I am? And they start kind of giving these names of people. It's like what I do. When I was in Israel, people said, well, what was Israel like? So what do I say? I have to kind of give an analogy. Well, the land, I said, it reminds me it's dry and hot, kind of rocky, reminds me a little bit of Lapine. I'm not saying it is Lapine. I'm just saying it kind of reminds me of Lapine. Or I'm in Portland at school and they'll say, you live in Grants Pass. What's it like to live in little cities like Grants Pass? I'll say, well, let me see. There's never any traffic. If you think traffic is bad here, spend a week in Portland. You come praising God for 6th Street at 5 o'clock. Like, this is no problem. It takes you a half an hour to go five miles. It's insane. Right? So man, there's no traffic. I said, I have never once in Grants Pass seen a man riding a bike naked. They have a whole weekend. Do you know that in Portland? It's crazy. Right? Never see, I've never seen men wearing tights. Praise God for that. So it's like Mayberry, you know? It's an awesome place to live. So I'm giving an analogy. That's what these guys are doing. Who do men say that the son of man is? And so they begin to say, well, some people say you're like John the Baptist. Remember John the Baptist? He's the countercultural guy, right? Recycling his gray water, living in a straw bale house, trying to tear down the status quo. Huma posting. Do you know what Huma posting is? Do not Google it. It is gross. He's that guy. He's just, he's against kind of the status quo. He's not gonna let it. He's going to, really start attacking stuff. Like this is not right. The way we've been doing stuff is not right. Jesus is the same way. I tell people this, if you don't want to be offended by Jesus, then do not read the gospels. Because if you read the gospels with an open heart, you're gonna say, oh my goodness, what Jesus is asking of me is radical. What Jesus is expecting this kingdom is, whoa. If you don't wanna be offended by Jesus, don't read him. So, yeah, John the Baptist like, just down with the status quo. And then some, no, no, you're like Elijah. What did Elijah do? Miracles. Jesus was doing miracles. You're like a miracle worker. It's awesome. And then some said, no, you're like Jeremiah. Jeremiah was the prophet who wept, a prophet of compassion. You look at the ministry of Jesus, and one word you should always use is, he is a man of compassion. The best example is Matthew chapter 14. We studied it a couple weeks ago. In Matthew 14, Jesus has just learned that his cousin, John the Baptist has died. Herod cut his head off. So he grabs his disciples and says, let's get out of here. They get in a boat, they cross the Sea of Galilee because Jesus just wants to be alone. They get to the other side and guess who's there? About 4,000 people waiting for Jesus. Now, if I'm Jesus, I'm gonna pull out the old walk on water thing and just take off. He doesn't. It says Jesus got off and began to minister to the people because he had compassion on them. Jesus absolutely has compassion. It's awesome. So, hey, you're like Jeremiah. And then thirdly, like the prophet. Because the words of Jesus were so exacting and so right. You read Jesus and the way he lived and you just say, that's how humans are supposed to live. That's how we're supposed to do this thing called community. That's how we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves. You read him and you just say, yes, that's it. More books have been written about Jesus than any other person in history. Why? Because he lived so right. You're like the prophet. You, just, you speak rightly. Yes. So, so they give all these answers, right? Give all these answers. Jesus doesn't say, hey, I kind of like that. He turns around and he asks one more question. He says, but, verse 15, who do you say that I am? The only question that's going to matter in eternity is how you answer that one. It doesn't matter what I think Jesus is. It doesn't matter what your parents think Jesus is. It doesn't matter what your kids think Jesus is. All that matters is, who do you say that I am? That's the question. And so Peter replies, you are the Christ, which means Messiah. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. So Peter makes this proclamation. You're the Christ. Now, what did, what did that mean to Peter 2,000 years ago? What do you think it meant to him? I think it meant two things. They knew the prophecies of the Old Testament. Like Isaiah 9, 6, that says this. We read it at Christmas all the time, and we kind of forget what it really means, right? Unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. And it says this about this son. It says that his name shall be the, anybody know? Everlasting Father. What? A child born who's going to be the everlasting? It doesn't make sense. You read that, and you just get mixed up by it. What in the world? The government's gonna be on his shoulders. He's gonna be a king. So you read that prophecy and you're like, who in the world could ever be that? Who could be both a child born and the everlasting father? Who could be that? Well, Jesus. They knew Messiah was gonna be God. So when Peter says, you're the Messiah, what he's saying is, you're God. That amazes me. Because at this point in the story of Matthew, Peter has been with Jesus for three years. And after three years, he's saying, you're God. Here's what I've noticed. The closer I get to people, if I spend three years with people, the more I know them, the less I think they're God. Have you noticed that? Like you look at them afar, you're like, hey, yeah, that dude is awesome. And then you get to really know them, you're like, oh, no. Like the best example was when I was in college, my senior year, we uh, had this this small home, and we brought in Johnny Garrett, who was the offensive tackle for the Oregon State Beavers. Three-year starter, he ended up being a four-year starter. Just a great guy, awesome guy. And I'm like, yeah, it'll be so cool having a football player as a roommate. Well, Johnny Garrett was 6'4", 270, and they wanted him 6'4", 300. And so they had him on this diet. Like, he did not eat vegetables. The test was this. If you rub the food on a napkin, does it turn translucent? If it does, eat it. And he had this blender. It wasn't like a blender. It was like a boat motor on a bucket. Like seriously, he would dump in it like a whole milk, a gallon of whole milk, all this weight gain powder, peanut butter, ice cream. It was just gains. And then he would like, and then he would carry this bucket around our house just drinking it the whole time. Well, all those calories started to mess with his digestive system. Like he literally became an offensive lineman, Right? The more I got to know him, the less I was like, "Dude's God. That's normally the process. It happens to me all the time. People want to take me out for lunch, and they're like, dude, I just always wanted to meet you. And after lunch, you're like, man, you're just normal. I think I'm going to find somewhere else to go to church. I have told you I'm normal. The closer you get, the less people seem like God. But Peter, after three years, watching Jesus, watching how he deals with stuff, just says, you're God. You're God. Secondly what it meant to them was this, it was their hope. They knew this, the Old Testament was built around a coming one. In Genesis three, you get the first hint of it. After Adam and Eve sin, God makes a promise there. It's, It's called the first mention of the gospel, the proto evangelium. And it's this, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent and the serpent will bruise his heel. There's coming one, take hope, there's coming one. So they had that hope. The Abrahamic covenant, you're gonna have a seed and in your seed, all the nations of earth shall be blessed. There's coming one. The Davidic covenant, David, you're going to have a son and this son is going to rule forever. What kind of son is that? That could possibly rule forever. They had in this, this hope. This is our hope, this is our hope. Isaiah 11, out of the stump of Jesse, because at that point, the kingdom of Israel had been cut off. Out of the stump of Jesse is going to come a root, a branch, literally a netzer. Jesus is called the Nazareth. It's the same word. So all this hope was pinned on this one that was coming. He's the answer. It's like when we were in Israel, Charity and I, we saw this lady, she was a mom with these kids. And she was wearing this shirt. I'd never seen the shirt before, but it said this, no matter the question, the answer is always chocolate, (laughs) right? So Charity and I started joking around with that. And she came up to him and she's like, I've lost my kids. Do you know where my kids are? The answer would be chocolate, chocolate. (laughs) right? I'm lost. I don't know where my hotel is. The answer would be chocolate. I really have to go to the bathroom. Do you know where the bathroom is? chocolate. <laughs> you drive her crazy. I think it actually might work with my wife. She loves chocolate. Where's Myron? Here's some chocolate. Oh, good. Right? Sometimes there's just stupid things like that. But to Israel, Messiah was the answer. Our hope against these beastly governments that have been crushing us now for 600 years, our hope is the Messiah. Rome, currently occupying them, Rome, our answer, our hope is Messiah. Messiah. Their hope was Messiah, that there would be a new king with a new kingdom where justice and righteousness would reign for eternity. That was their hope. So he was God and he was their hope. So Peter here says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds with something. And in this response, we have the launch of the church. And I don't have time to talk about it all, I would like to, you wouldn't like that. We'll hit a little bit more on Wednesday. But in his response, we have the foundations of what the church is supposed to be, okay? Let me give them to you, there are three. First, there's keys, there's destiny, and there's victory. Notice number one, Jesus says, I will give, verse 19, you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Keys are important, aren't they? Real important. Returning from Israel, we were in Newark, New Jersey at the airport, and we had a five-hour layover. I now call it no-work airport. So we got into Portland at 2 a.m., and I needed to get a rental car and drive home. So it was a brutal time. So we go, there was a couple that lived in Salem. We just said, hey, we'll give you a ride, come with us. And I told them, I told my wife and this couple, just wait here, I'll go get the car and pick you up. So I go to the car, it's this 19, or 19, 2016 Jetta. And I get in it and it has one of those keys that are not a key, you know, the ones. And so I'm in there, literally for 10 minutes, I could not start it. I'm like trying everything. I'm like, start, go, button, e-brake. I mean, I was, it was, it was just so frustrating, especially to go back to my wife and this couple, like, yeah, I can't start the car. So after 10 minutes, I finally, I'm like, I got to find somebody. Well, it's two in the morning now, about two 30 in the morning. There's nobody around. So I'm running around this big giant parking garage trying to find somebody. Finally, I find this guy. I'm like, I cannot start this car. He's like, what is it? I said, it's a 2016 Jetta. He's like, oh, you don't own a Volkswagen. I said, actually, <laughs> I do own a Volkswagen. But normally I start it by pushing it. And it didn't work on that one. <laughs> just fully embarrassing. So, anyways, I just wanted a key. I understand the key. It opens things, it empowers things, it gives you access, it starts stuff. Here's what Jesus is saying to the church: You've got the keys of the kingdom. You have access and you have power. First Peter, excuse me, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says this to believers everything you need for life and for godliness has been given to you. You're not waiting for something else to happen. Too often I think we're like me in the parking lot of life and we're struggling like, how do we get out of here? I need something, I need help. And sometimes we do need help. Like I look for a manual. The first thing I did was I looked for a manual. They didn't have a manual in that car. And the second thing I did is I looked for a person to help me. Sometimes when you feel stalled out, read the manual go find a person that's doing it really well. Sometimes we need that, but I'm telling you, there's nothing you need more than what God has already given you. Just very often we're just stalled out, waiting for something. And Jesus has said, I've given you the keys. You can loose and you can bind. It's actually spiritual warfare talk. I've given you the power, it's yours already, number one. Number two, he says this to Peter, verse 18. And I tell you, You are Peter. What was his name before that? Simon. You used to be this person, but with your confession of who I am, faith in me, I'm giving you a brand new destiny, a brand new identity. You are now Peter, which means rock. I'm changing you. I'm transforming you. When you believe in Jesus, you are given a brand new identity. You're given a brand new destiny. I think many people in our day-to-day have no idea of what they're supposed to be. 18 years old, they graduate from high school. What, what am I supposed to do? 25 years old, they've done some different jobs. Wh- who am I? 40 years old, wh- what's up? And because of that, because they don't have, like, this is, you are Peter. They don't have an identity. What ends up happening is they're like, why even bother? Why not just binge on Netflix? I call it idiots and smoke pot. Why not? I don't have any identity. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. When Jesus says, I have a destiny and an identity for you. The best example I have of this is I read a book and it was called How Jason Saved His, one of the chapters called How Jason Saved His Family. And the family is actually just up in Portland. I kind of know the crew. And what's amazing is this, Jason, good dad, good wife, 13-year-old daughter, starts to go south. She ends up having this boyfriend that always smells like cigarette smoke and answers all of the dad's questions with one word answers. Yeah, no, whatever, or the worst, why? Have my daughter back by nine, why? Don't have her back and find out why, okay? So just, ugh, and then one day they're clean up her room a little bit and they open the top drawer and there they find a bag of marijuana, and she's 13 years old, and his heart is crushed. Man, man, what's up with this? And so the mom and dad, they just have this time of reflection and, and crying, and, and what are we supposed to be doing? Do we ground her? Do we just come down on her? And, and the dad one morning was sitting there, and he's reading his Bible, just thinking, he thought, I have to demonstrate faith. I haven't demonstrated faith. And so that day, he went to the bank, took out a massive second mortgage on his home, and decided he's going to start an orphanage in Mexico. And after he'd done that, he then told his wife and daughter. You might want to try that the other way around. (laughs) So his wife, and they just had it out that night. And the next morning, he's up again early, just can't sleep. And he says, for the first time in forever, my wife came down. And she came down, she put her arms around me. She said, I don't understand this, but I'm so proud of you. Let's do it. Say so they started an orphanage in Mexico, and they started working down. They started going down there, they started loving on kids. And the daughter was much slower kind of engaging with it, but then she started to engage, and she went down on a summer trip, and she stayed there for a while, and she loved some kids, And when she came back, she broke up with that boyfriend, she thought, quit smoking marijuana." And so the dad, Jason said, "Why'd you do that?" And she said, "Because when you're a hero to children, you don't date losers and you don't smoke pot." She had a destiny. This is what God has for me. I'm a queen in training. I'm not doing that. No way, God has greater things for me. Peter, that's who you are now. You're a saint. You are sanctified. You're adopted into the family of Jesus Christ. You're part of his community, and I have incredible things for you to do. Destiny, you are Peter. When you believe in Jesus, you're given a brand new identity. If you don't know what it is, read Colossians 1, 7 through 15. This is your new identity. This is what you are. Keys, identity or destiny. And then thirdly, and lastly, victory. Jesus says this. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell, literally Hades, the term used for that pan-temple crack, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. There's where location is so important. Jesus introduces the church as his disciples are right there in front of this just terrible pagan temple to Pan. He's saying, on this rock, over this crevice, I'm going to build my church over the whole to hell. I'm going to find the worst place in Israel to bring you to, to say, this is where I'm going to build my church. And guess what? I will win. I will win with the church that I build. I will win. Jesus is saying, I did not leave heaven. I did not leave glory to make nice people act nicer. I left heaven. I left glory To storm the gates of hell and reclaim what rightfully belongs to me. The people that are inside that temple right now, doing terrible things, I'm here to reclaim them. And I'm gonna do it through the church that I build. That's the purpose. Jesus purposely goes there. The place that good people don't go, this is where I'm beginning it. I'm going to storm hell's gate, and I will win. I love that. Well, I got one objection, Matt. It feels like hell's winning right now. I look around our society. I look around our world, and there are beasts that are still crushing people. ISIS is crushing people. A beastly government doing exactly what happened in Daniel. It still feels like hell's winning. Our economy. Drug use, it does not feel like Jesus is winning. Let me give you one thought on that. I think very often church can be built on one of these four models. There can be John the Baptist churches, right? Like we're just gonna challenge the status quo down with this thing, down with the way we used to do church. I'm not gonna do church like my mom did it. However, my dad did it. I'm gonna do it different. I'm just gonna change it. Sometimes churches are built on that. It's kind of a rejection of the way things have been done. Sometimes churches are built on Elijah. We're just waiting for a miracle. When a miracle happens, we'll, we'll go. Instead of being the miracle, which is I, what I believe God's called us to be. So sometimes it's, we're just waiting for the miracle. We could be the miracle. Sometimes it's John the Baptist ministry. We just want to feed everybody. Compassion. Sometimes it's that prophet. We just want a really solid Bible teaching. Now, all four of those things are great things and they should be a place in church for all of them. But that is not the church that Jesus builds. The church that Jesus builds is right here. And I think where we have gone almost in the Protestant side of things is, is we've built a church on what I think is half of the work of Jesus. I call it the atonement. The atonement is this. Jesus came, died on the cross, paid for our sins and forgave us which is a great doctrine, right? Forgiveness and payment have to go together. So if I go to your house and I break your lamp, you can forgive me, but you still have to pay to get a new lamp. Well, the atonement is both of those things together. Jesus paid for our sins and forgives us of them. It's a beautiful doctrine, the atonement. But there's another side to what Jesus did. And Martin Luther centered on this, that great reformer. It's called Christus victor. It means when Jesus came, he came not just to atone for us. He came to do war for us, to crush the serpent's head. That's what Jesus came to do. That there is a battle. It's light against darkness. It's good against bad. And it's very important for us to realize, yes, we have been saved, but we've been saved to something. Guess what that is? To do war. Think about all the analogies in the Bible that are warfare. Ephesians chapter six, put on the full armor of God. Why do you need armor on? Because there's a battle. I think we forget that side, that we're actually supposed to be storming the gates of hell. And when we lose that mission, what happens in the church is we lose why we're here. Well, So then instead of going out and storming the gates of hell, guess what we start doing? We start trying to protect ourselves. No, don't do that. Oh, don't go there. That could be dangerous oh don't engage them. That'll never work. So instead of storming the gates where we know we will win, we start just trying to protect ourselves and protect our kids and protect society. I'm well, not supposed to do that. We're offensive, right? Gates don't move, do they? Have you ever seen a gate attack you? Walking by a gate, ah, my goodness. No, you attack gates. In the ancient world, the gate was the way into the city. You attacked the gate. Jesus says, We're here to attack the gate. When the church starts saying, you know what? Our job is to look around and find the hell and say, we're attacking that hell. Our job is to say, where are people being hurt by the serpent? And that's where we're attacking. We're camping there. That's what we're supposed to be doing. That's what Jesus is talking about right here. That's when Hades shakes. Hades shakes when we decided four months ago, three months ago, we're gonna save families. We know family is real important in the Bible, and it's under attack in our community. So we're attacking that gate. And you know what? It's been real hard. It's been interesting. You know, we have a key guy named Glenn Litwiller who ends up with a stroke right after we decide we're going to go for safe families, who's part of that equation. And it's like, wow, I think we chose the right thing. And it's going to be a battle. And it's going to be hard. And we have to persevere. And we cannot give up. Why? Because we want Hades shaking. I think Hades shakes when Rebecca Bender says, you know what? The sex trafficking of women has to stop. And I'm gonna dedicate my life to stopping that thing. I think Hades shakes when she made the decision. And the people that gather around are saying, yes, we have to stop that. I think Hades shakes when Peter and Susan Tomashiro say, pregnant girls, that is a potential hell. They're gonna be absolutely economically in trouble. They're going to be losing probably friendships and maybe even family over this. They need help. So we're going to make sure on our watch, they get all the help they can, all the love they can, all the hugs they can, because we don't want that potential hell in our city. I think Haiti shakes. I think Haiti shakes when five young girls said this summer, we're going to go to Africa and we're going to love people and share with them the good news that Jesus Christ is victorious. I think Haiti shakes. They went to a house, if you don't know this, and the next day, it's a Muslim house, the next day, the husband committed suicide and hung himself. And so now you have a orphan situation and you have a widow situation where there needs to be tons of love and tons of help and tons of storming the gates of hell. This, to me, is the church Jesus builds. I came, not to make nice people nicer, I came to storm Pan's temple and to take what rightfully belongs to me back again. The souls of people that I love and that I died for. And when the church says, We're here, we want that church as well. We wanna do that. When we as individuals go around our city and start looking for hell, where is the hell at? And we say, I'm camping there. I'm taking that out. Man, Hades shakes, and the church has a mission. We go personally. There's hell in each one of us, you know that? There's a little fire. James 3 says, our tongues light the very fires of hell on. And we say, I'm gonna tackle that in me. There's a hell in me, I gotta get out of here. And we'll talk in Matthew 18, Jesus gives the method by which you attack your own personal hell. We say, I'm putting that hell out. Hades shakes. That's the mission of the church. That's what we're here to do. The church is, I think often misguided into one of these four things. And Jesus keeps coming back, the church I wanna build, the church I wanna build. I'm gonna give you keys. You're gonna have a destiny and you're gonna attack the very gates of hell and they will not win, you will, amen? So here's the two applications I'll give to us. Some in here, we end every service now with baptism when we're outside. Baptism is this. Sometimes there's a hell in you that's on fire and you need to go in these waters and get that hell put out. It's just that simple. So is it, the fi- is it the waters actually that put the fires out? No way. It's Jesus. Read Romans chapter six. It really describes baptism. It says this, when you go into the wa- these waters, you die, you're buried with Christ in his death, but then you are resurrected into newness of life. That the old you, you can actually let it die in these waters and you can come back out, resurrected into power and newness of life. It's not the waters that do it. It is what theologians call a means of grace. It's just a channel by which grace or healing or something can be released. It's that that tangible thing like communion, these sacraments. They're not special in and of themselves. They're special because you have faith in Jesus and this is the way that that thing is released. So maybe some of you are struggling with a hell and you're saying, I wanna get this hell out of me. Go into these waters. Allow that means of grace to transform you pull you out. You know what? Pan's temple is a rubble now. There's nothing left of it. But guess what still remains? The church. The gates have not prevailed. The church is winning. It will continue to win because we have a king who has overcome. And secondly, maybe here's what you need. You need prayer. Sometimes we just need prayer. Somebody pray for me. The Bible says this, if you will walk in the spirit, you will not fulfill the lust, literally the fires of the flesh. Sometimes we just need someone to pray for us and say, there's a fire in me right now I need put out. I want to start walking after God's spirit so I don't fulfill those lusts anymore. And so Galatians 6.1 says, you that are spiritual, come alongside them and pray for them and bear their burden and talk with them and help those fires to go out. So if you need prayer, there'll be Titus 2 ladies and elders and pastors and leadership will be right here. We'd love to pray for you. So if you need one of those applications, do that. If you're doing fine Can I ask you, look around for the hell around you and start praying, God, how do I put this hell out? How do I storm this gate of a stronghold that's causing people you love to be hurt every single day? Give me wisdom on that. Grab a pastor, start talking about it. That's how Grant's past will be changed. The church is the mechanism God has chosen to transform our world. That's the mechanism. We get to enter into that, have identity and destiny, understand the keys we've been given. There's nothing more glorious than being used by King Jesus in this incredible world that he's created for us. Amen. So Father, I thank you for a great passage, a warm day, Independence Day, where we have been set free from the tyranny of beastly stuff, the pharaohs, the Satan, the kingdom of darkness. We've been set free because of the magnificent victory you accomplished 2,000 years ago. May we live like free people. May we be a church that you build given the keys, given mission and purpose and destiny and attacking the strongholds, the gates of Hades, seeing them plugged up for your kingdom for our joy. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great fourth.